The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 144. Ooh, a square number. <laughs> 12 squared. Yes, for hobbits, it's an important birthday, too. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart team. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Position he looks wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Panel Z! I am Scottish. About things. Ooh. She'll be fine. So, hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Uh, and today we're discussing the 10th Doctor story, Silence in the Library. It's the first of two parts, I should say. Uh, and uh, this one is we're talking about is Silence in the Library. Joining me today on the panel, as you've heard, are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, if, you, if you dance to, and, uh, to the 144th episode, is that square dancing? Oh, it could Ooh. be. But uh, 144 beats a minute is actually quite fast for dancing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. different, types, different types of dancing prefer different numbers of beats per minute, yes. often between 100 and uh, 130. 144 would be quite fast. Gets you gets your blood flowing. Okay, so yeah, more than more than two steps a minute. Uh, I'm sorry, two steps a second. Yes. Uh, so uh, it's like Irish dancing. I'm totally, I'm totally distracted. Now that we've today, gone so. way off track, let's come back. <laughs> yes, let's come back. And first, uh, if you still want to listen to this podcast and you still think we're uh, we're, we're worthwhile, please go to the Apple Podcasts uh, app or to one of the other. Uh, podcast directories and write a review. Hopefully it's a five-star review that ignores our opening tangents. Uh, but also, please share the podcast with your friends. Help us grow our community, reach more listeners. Uh, but I'm very excited because I, I'm, we were talking about two of my favorite uh, episodes of Doctor Who. This is, this is one, uh, this, this story is one of the best of modern Who, of new Who, and I'm very excited that we get to talk about it now. How do you guys feel about this? Jimmy? Oh, these are awesome. We're now up to a point in our review of Modern Who episodes where we have three episodes in a row that I use as introductions to Doctor Who. Mm. If I have only enough time to show somebody one episode, I show the Midnight, which is after this, the one after this two-parter. Mm -hmm. If I have enough time to show them two episodes of Doctor Who, I show them Silence in the Library and its second part, Forest of the Dead. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree with that. Uh, people, you know, ask uh, or say, uh, oh, I haven't started watching Doctor Who. I don't know where to begin. Do I have to go back to the beginning, nineteen sixty three? No, don't do that. Um, <laughs> you, 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 frankly, you can't necessarily watch all those anyway. Uh, and I wouldn't go back to Rose, the first of, episode of the Modern Who. But yeah, I think I think this is a good place to start. And it's not a yeah. coincidence that it's uh, Stephen Moffat who is the right. writer of this one. Well, and it's it's interesting, too. I was just thinking that, you know, this really shows us where Who is going to be going. Of course, we didn't realize it at the time this came out. Right. But it's really showing where Who is going because Stephen Moffat, of course, having written it, 
uh, it definitely has his fingerprints all over it that we then see after and the the DNA for future Matt who? Smith era and on yeah yeah, yeah. The, and and it shows the reason I use these three episodes as introductions is because they show you what the series can be at its best so. Mm-hmm. It's a way of letting people see if you stick with this series, this is the kind of stuff you can get. There is one other episode that I also use as an introduction, and that's Blink, which is yes. also written by Stephen Moffat. Yes. So actually, of the four episodes I use as intros, three are written by Stephen Moffat. One is written by Russell T. Davies. That's Midnight. Oh. Yeah, that that might. Yeah, that Midnight is is Davies' best episode, I think. Yeah. yeah. So this one. Uh, aired in May of 2008. It's, we're still in the fourth season, making our way through that. And uh, it's the Tenth Doctor and Donna. It, but we start with, in this episode, not with the Doctor and Donna in the first image, but with a little girl talking to a therapist, mm-hmm. uh, telling him what she sees when she closes her eyes. And she imagines a library in her mind, and someone's trying to get in. And then Surprise! This in in her imagination, it's the Doctor and Donna bursting in to the, through this door and blocking the, the door. And then the Doctor sees this girl and starts talking to her, and her eyes pop open and the credits roll. And that's how it begins, sort of. Yeah. Breakneck yeah. speed. Also, the library is really gorgeous. The oh, visuals yeah. Oh, yeah. they use is just really impressive. Yeah, the, it's not not like the standard library you went to as a kid. This is an amazing library, just <laughs> visually. This yes. beautiful woodwork and everything, and and I, I wonder if some of it is an an actual library that they either filmed in or modeled after, or I know obviously some of it's CG and things like that. But th- there's some of these. I wonder if these are actual set or just sets or actual library filming locations. They filmed on location at Swansea Library in Swansea, in England, um, as well as a few other places, uh, St Mary of the Angels in Canton. Uh, I'm not sure there where, we go. And, and, uh, but also, uh, so uh, not in Ohio, presumably, uh, or in Massachusetts, no. where I grew up. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's a couple of different locations around Swansea and uh, Glamorgan, Vale of Glamorgan, which is some gardens. Mm. Uh, I forget where they. That might have been the hospital. We'll get to that. But uh, Victoria Park, Palace Row, Hensel Castle. So, so it, it's, it looks like they're all. Other than there is a studio filming location, but it looks like a lot of them are actual on-site locations, yeah. too. I'm guessing Swansea Library was that at least that big, it might have been that big opening hall that where the TARDIS yeah. lands. And yep. the lights turn out. Yes. Or the, or, or the one where the lights turn out. Oh, right, right. So uh, it's a good question. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, the beautiful wooden shelves. I, I mean, I think all three of us are, oh, are yeah. book lovers. So uh, if you're watching this one. Now I have to say there is a meme running around where the the it's quoting the doctor and it claims to be from this episode of the doctor saying we're surrounded by books books are the greatest weapons ever uh we can use those against whatever the enemy that never actually is said in this no. episode is it no we nope. do get some up talking of books uh it, towards the beginning of the episode after after the sudden reveal of the doctor and Donna we flashback in time to how they got there and the doctor t- is bringing donna to the 51st century yes which we just recently saw on doctor who in the invisible enemy episode that's true where you had the virus and it's also where river song and captain jack are from 
And so it's an important century in Doctor Who history. It's also a home of Magnus Greel, a future dictator and warlord uh, that we learned about in the Talons of Wing Chiang. Uh, but the doctor has brought Donna here, and he said, and he says people never really stop loving books, and by that he means physical books, right? And and we've got this standard Luddite speech about how oh you get the feel of the pages and the smell and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry, Kindle books are way more convenient. <laughs> um, I well, have to agree, especially if you have thousands of them like I do. You you you've had enough physical books at some point. Yeah. Well, but you know it's interesting though because. The last scene of the last episode, Unicorn and the Wasp, was of the Doctor showing Donna a late, 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 late centuries reprint year, of year the Agatha Christie billion. book. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so it's like, it goes like, that was the last message of the last episode, and they go right into it again with the next episode. Yeah, yeah. He, he says, uh, you know, in the 51st century, you got holovids, direct-to-brain downloads, fiction mist, which I'd, I'd, I'd love to imagine what that is. Uh, but but people Probably love a that. holodeck. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, and then he, but he says the this library it's the library it's a it's big enough that it's just called the uh, library. It's a world, literally a planet, yeah. uh, where every book every book ever written. He says whole continents of Jeffrey Archer, Bridget Jones, Monty Python's Big Red Book, brand new editions, specially printed. Uh, yeah. Now why would you need why would you need whole continents of like Jeffrey Archer? Wrote plenty of books, but you know, right, enough to like literally fill well, a continent. But to be fair, it is still Stephen Moffat. Yes, and it yeah, is, it's so not enough th- to have a continent or a country that is a library. No, it has to be the whole <laughs> world. Yeah, and being Stephen Moffat, this is science fairy tale, not science fiction, and so you can have a, a planet-sized library with continents of a single author, even though. There are a lot of plausibility problems with a planet-sized yeah. library. I mean, why would anyone why would anyone want to go there? Right. When you could just download whatever you want to read. Why would you go to undertake an inter at least interplanetary, presumably interstellar journey to go to a library to read a physical book when you could much more easily read the same content at home? Right. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, so the doctor says uh, they're at the equator, which uh, at the library is biographies. And he says he loves biographies. Here here comes the next bit. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Donna kind of says, oh, yeah, that's you. Always a death at the end. And the doctor says, oh, you need a good death. Without death, there'd only be comedies. Dying gives us size, which, of course, is very meta. It's it's, telling us about the the, the end of the episode. But I'm like... Yeah, Moffat, maybe learn a lesson from that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's actually, it's actually true. If there are no stakes to a story, then it lessens the dramatic impact. Death does and, give us size. And right. Spoilers. Um, it, <laughs> yeah. It's still a Stephen Moffat episode. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. We'll talk right, about it right. later. Well, Moffat never kills his people, never kills a character. Never, never ones we care about. Right. He he will do yeah. things to them, but then he pulls back the death as he does in this episode or right. in this two parter. Right. And you know he'll do it to Clara. He'll do it to Amy. He'll do it to everybody uh, that we encounter. They never. No one ever. No one we care about ever really dies. Yeah. You can you can be literally turned into a Cyberman and still have a happy ending. <laughs> right. So he, uh, the doctor then admonishes uh, uh, Donna to not read the books to avoid spoilers, 
Um, which she kind of points out, um, you take me traveling to the future. How is that? He says, oh, I keep you away from major <laughs> plot developments. Which I'm really bad at, he says. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course, River will turn that statement, you know, no spoilers, around mm -hmm. on the Doctor. He's, he gets his comeuppance on that one as well. Um, and that's interesting. Oh, so we'll, we'll talk about River when we get to her, I guess. That's, uh, because um, it's, it's some interesting things to say. He says he, you know, he notices that the, the, the library is empty. Um, and Donna suggests that maybe because it's Sunday, and he says, oh, I never land on Sundays. The Sundays are boring. Nothing happens. Uh, uh, presumably, <laughs> as, as a time traveler, he doesn't have to, ever have to travel to a particular day of the week he doesn't want to land on, I suppose. Yeah, there may be one Sunday that's an exception to that, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is a one Sunday where something very exciting happened. Yeah, exactly. But uh, so it's so it's clear, though, that everybody is missing from this world of a library, except they go on the computer and they find out that depending on how they set the search filters, there are either a trillion life forms on the planet, but they don't see any of them. And, yeah. and if they set the filters differently, it shows only two humans, yeah. the doctor and Donna or humanoid mm -hmm. life forms. So it's like where are the missing mystery life forms that aren't human that the sensor detects. They they also learned that supposedly there were 4,022 people in the library 100 years ago at the time something very mysterious happened. And that, again, is just another implausibility. You build a planet-wide library, it's only got 4,022 people in it, really? That seems like a waste of a planet. Yeah. It was an off day. <laughs> yeah. On that whole, like, oh, there's trillion life forms, where could they all be? Um, they're called microbes. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where there are people, there are microbes, and maybe even book mites or anything else that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be sinister. Uh, we we've kind of overlooked that, but uh, okay, so we'll we'll move on from that. Uh, so they they encounter what's called a courtesy node, which is a sort of like statue robot thingy with a human face. Uh, literally, <laughs> it's face. pretty creepy, um, actually. Yeah. Yes, which speaks in a bit of a monotone and tells them, "Run for God's sake, run and count the shadows." So uh, I, I like the way the uh, courtesy node introduces what she's going to say. She'll say, "This message has been edited for tone and content." <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, yeah. Run for God's sake, run. Nowhere is safe. Second <laughs> message: This has been edited for coherency. Arg, slarg, snick. Yep. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Please switch off your, your mobile phones for the comfort of other uh, readers. Uh, yes. Yeah. So and then the doctor reveals that they, they're there because he got a message on his psychic paper. Uh, he doesn't know from whom. Yeah, this is the first time we've seen the psychic paper used for messaging. And mm -hmm. it, it just says, like, come to the library as soon as possible. And it's got an X, which Donna points out. Oh, sealed with a kiss. Yep. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and so then we, they, they are running uh, in, into the, uh, the, the room, the, the rotunda, as they call it, and, um, because they notice the lights going out. And so they, they run from the lights going out and from the darkness. And that's where we started, with the, where the little girl was, was in there. It turns out that... What they saw was not the little girl, but a, some kind of floating security camera, a sort of drone yeah. ball, which we never see again. Cool looking one with the, the wood grain and everything on it. Yes, it's very nice. I want a, I want a wood grain drone. 
Also, when they try to get into the room, the reason they were pounding on the door, uh, we see the other side of that event. And the Donna is like, why don't you just sonic it? Yeah, right. And the doctor says the sonic screwdriver doesn't do wood. And yeah. she's like, it doesn't do wood. And you know, you know who else's magical item doesn't do wood? The original Green Lantern, Alan Scott's power ring would not affect wood. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh so he he's and the doctor's like, well, I can vibrate the molecules or fry the bindings or shadow line the interface. And she's like, oh, get out of the way. She kicks the door open. Yeah. <laughs> Go Donna. <laughs> so uh, now the drone is apparently affected. The doctor starts sonicking that, although it's wood. But uh, and the, but the little girl on the other side start falls to the ground and start it, it gets upset and is affected by his tampering, so to speak. Um, and the girl, you know, stops, you know, on her other side and opens her eyes and she talks to, uh, Dr. Moon, who is helping her. That's the counselor she was talking to earlier. Right. Very gentle man. Yes. And, uh, uh, and she's there with her dad and Dr. Moon, but not mom. There's no mom there, which I thought was interesting. And, uh, and she starts hearing a noise. It's, and it's the sonic screwdriver that the doctor is using on the security camera and and so 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 forth. So we and we get some stuff with that uh, having to do with the 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 girl and the security camera somehow she's connected to it. Meanwhile, yeah. Donna almost steps in a shadow that doesn't have anything casting it. So the you know the doctor notices. I, although I have to say this whole like don't step into shadows or other people's shadows thing. They don't they're very loose about. I I kept noticing oh, yeah. I was looking they walk through shadows throughout this episode. They're clustered up yeah. and there's shadows being cast on each other. And yeah. Yeah. And you can just kind of roll with some of that. There is a bit of an on-screen explanation. The doctor says that it's not any, it's not every shadow that has the danger in it. Yeah. It, but it is any shadow can have the danger yep. in it. And right. so, um, so that's part of why they can be a little loose about this uh, since it's not every shadow. And I've actually seen some people say it's uh, that they think it's scarier that mm-hmm. it's any shadow rather than every shadow, right? Because right. You, there's more uncertainty. You don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, they just don't seem to be taking the precautions at all times, like they they claim they are. But you yeah, know, it's it's it would be impossible to film it otherwise. I suppose so. Uh, we'll just we'll a little a willing to suspension of disbelief there. Uh, and then we have the arrival of. Uh, this group in spacesuits and then River Song takes off her helmet and says to the doctor, hello, sweetie, uh, which flummoxes the doctor to no end. Yeah. Um, then he finds out that they're archaeologists and he says, I'm a time traveler. I point and laugh at archaeologists. <laughs> actually, actually, it's the reverse. He says, like, oh, what do you think you are, archaeologists? And, and I laugh at archaeologists. And she takes off her glove and says, River Song, archaeologists. <laughs> right, yeah. right, 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 right. Uh, it, and they reveal that uh, they're an expedition to the library because the library has been silent for the past hundred years, and they're coming to find out why. She's got in the entourage this uh, this fellow who is the descendant of the owners of the library, the builders of the library, Mister um, Lux. Mister Lux. The the doctor pretty quickly uh, uh, has uh, diagnosed the problem of, of what's going on here. It's the he calls it the Vashta Narada. And he and he has this like very creepy speech where he, he gives where fear of the dark isn't irrash- irrational because that's what the Vashta Narada live in the dark and they're the the piranha of the air or something like that. 
Yep. Uh, and he says you can see the Vashtra Narada in sunlight. They're the moats, the bits of dust in a sunbeam. <laughs> right. Which And every planet has them. So this is more of Doctor Who taking something totally ordinary and yes. making it scary. Like yep. angels in a cemetery. <laughs> yeah. By, exactly. by the way, I wanted... I wanted to comment on the introduction of River Song because this is something new in Doctor Who history. We've never, we have had the Doctor cross his own timeline before in multi Doctor team up episodes. But apart from that, we've never had a future companion meet the Doctor. It's real mm-hmm. clear from the beginning River knows who the Doctor is and she's a future companion. In fact, you put the evidence together, she's, she's way more than a future companion. I mean, right. you, you look at, all the little clues they drop, including the kiss on the psychic paper and the way she refers to him as sweetie and the way she's willing to sacrifice herself for him. We'll find out in the next episode. And at one point, she and the doctor are squabbling and Mr. Luck says, like, you're just like an old married couple. Well, that's exactly what they are. Mm -hmm. These two episodes strongly hint that River is the doctor's future wife. And we've never, that's another first, not only have we never had a future companion show up, we've never had the doc, a wife of the doctor show up. And so this is really interesting. I, I read an interview or with uh, Stephen Moffat where he said that this was not a big plan on his part. The reason he created River was because he needed someone who would instantly and totally trust the doctor. In, in order to move the plot the way he wanted. And so the easiest way to do that was say, oh, it's a future companion who already knows him. And then that creates all these great disorienting things for the doctor where he mm. she knows more than he does about things. Right. And he gets to be the fish out of water who's playing catch up with somebody else for a change, which is really nice. The next time they do something similar to this is in the David Tennant specials that followed this season, where we have an episode called The Next Doctor, where Mm. as David Tennant is heading towards his regeneration, he meets somebody who thinks he's the doctor. And David Tennant is totally open to the idea this is the next me. Right, right. He treats him. Yeah, we'll get. Yeah, we'll be talking about that soon. He treats him as if. He really is his next incarnation. Um, in the specials, he also runs into another woman who reminds us a lot of River, at the, like a smart, mm-hmm. capable one who, who, who yep. woman who who hold you know keeps pace with him and, and gives him a run for his own, his money. So uh, it, it's some interesting characters. So River has become this 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 big part of Doctor, the Doctor Who mythos, and she's she's there at at this point, and she. We see her depart at the very end of Stephen Moffat's time. I mean, she is a Moffat character. I mean, she, yeah. she doesn't exist and, otherwise. And, and and he didn't know he was going to be showrunner in the future. And so as a result, he created River as a one-off. Yeah. He didn't yeah. know he'd get to later explore her story. And then when he became showrunner, he said, okay, I guess I need to pay that off. And he filled in the rest of her story. Yeah. I mean, there are some problems. I don't want to say problems, but there are some you know, uh, headcanon things you have to do here to, to, you know, in the, in the end, because the fact is, is she, in this episode, she kind of talks about as if there's, they have this huge history together that they spent. Yeah. But when we see things play out, you're, you're kind of left wondering, when did all that history actually occur? 
Yeah, she. So when she shows up, the first thing she does is whip out a, or one of the first things she does is whip out a diary that looks like the TARDIS, right? And says, mm-hmm. "Let's compare diaries. Have we done? Uh, have we done this event yet?" And and he the she, crash he, of the Byzantium, looked, by the way. Well, which... no, it's another one first. Oh, the Asgard. Then, yeah. No, it's after that. Before that, she oh, okay. names one, and then he when he gives her a blank look, he says, "Oh, so this is early days. Have we done Crash of the Byzantium yet?" And then she says, how about Picnic at Asgard? And so she seems to be working her way backwards in her own personal timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we f- we do eventually get to see the crash of the Byzantium that she talks about, it's in the Matt Smith era, though. Mm-hmm. And so it's like she's staring at David Tennant and asking, have we done an event that occurred in Matt Smith's era? Right. And so why doesn't she remember that she did that with the Matt Smith incarnation of the Doctor? Why does she mistake it for this one? And that's a bit of an inconsistency that you have to headcanon. Right. My headcanon on that is, well, you know, if I know someone long enough and if they changed appearances, I might in years later get mixed up about exactly which appearance they had at the time, mm-hmm. maybe. Right, right. She because she's, I think she's thinking that maybe. The, well, when this was written, it was entirely possible that she would encounter the David Tennant right uh, version yep. of the Doctor, the Tenth Doctor again, uh, but she never does, and so we have that to kind we of see. that we see right. So we have to assume that uh, we have to have that that is, that headcanon, like like you mentioned. So, yeah. and she gets distressed when she realizes he doesn't know her like at all. And that right. this is a this is a problem it, for her. Yeah, she's hurt. Yes, uh, and yeah, it, it, which I can imagine would be uh, difficult for someone who has a history is even you know married the person you've married, uh, you, the person you presumably love. Yeah, uh, doesn't yeah. remember you. That would be hard. I know if I yeah. I know if I suddenly met my wife and she was back from the dead and I get to see her and she doesn't know me. I mean, yeah. ouch! That would that would hurt. Yes, yeah. yes. So we also have um, this, uh, among this group of people in in Rivers Entourage, we have the two Daves, uh, proper Dave and other Dave. We have Anita, <sighs> and we have Lux, who is the the owner of the Library Planet, and his yeah. assistant or his personal everything, so to speak. Her, mm. uh, her name Miss Evangelista, who everybody yeah. treats really poorly. Yeah. It's explained to Donna by Anita and other Dave that Miss Evangelista is a little bit dim. She's not employed <laughs> for her intellectual attributes, and she mistook the escape pod on the spaceship that they came in as uh, the lavatory, yes. and they had to go back for her twice. So she apparently <laughs> she jettisoned twice. the escape pod twice, yeah. and they had to keep going back for her. Yeah, So and, and so they... She's sort of this buffoonish character, uh, which the which Donna, to her credit, uh, tries to befriend and be nice mm-hmm. to because she's obviously distressed at what's going on. Um, well, I, I do like the scene though where uh, Miss Evangelista tries to give them the contracts they're supposed to sign in in sequence. Oh, isn't that great? Rip. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah non disclosure yeah. agreements that there's that they're going to sign. It's it's a great it's a great reversal because she they she hands them the NDEs and they're like oh yeah let me take that and they both just simultaneously rip them in half without even <laughs> yep. discussing it right yeah, right exactly 
Also, there's a lot of neat little, you know, dialogue and little bits in this. There's an effective use of humor, including mixed with fear in some cases. Like we have on the humor side, we have River referring to the doctor as pretty boy, come over here. And he doesn't realize she's talking to him at first. (laughs) Oh, I'm pretty boy. (laughs) And also the doctor, when he's he hasn't yet explained exactly the Vashti Narada, but he he tells everybody to stay really still and stay in the light. And he says, if you understand me, look very, very scared. <laughs> yeah. No, a bit more scared than that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, Proper Dave, he's the pilot of the uh, spaceship that they came in on. He's doing some stuff on the library computer and sets off some kind of alarm, which is connected to the phone in the little girl's house. And mm-hmm. it rings and in, in in their house. Um, the doctor warns them, uh, like you said, not to step in shadows or cross shadows. Uh, and then the doctor wants to see in River's diary. He's Because we have this moment where she's trying to figure out where they are. And he's later on, he kind of walks up to her diary sitting there on the counter and he walks up. He's about to pick it up and start like, who is this woman? How do I know her? And she's like, oh, no, that's against the rules. These These are your rules, doctor. So uh, yeah. so it's it's he's he's the one who made the rules she says This is Dom Bettinelli of the StarQuest Production Network, and we need your help. Over the past year, we've grown by leaps and bounds. Some of our podcasts, like Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, are among the most popular shows we've ever produced. But that success is in danger. Creating a dozen shows has caused our expenses to rise, and right now, we aren't making ends meet. We must reach the financial break-even point if we're going to continue. If our reserves are depleted, we'll have to cut back many of our shows. We might have to shut down entirely. That's why it's crucial we hear from you right now now please go to sqpn.com slash give and click the become a patron button to make your monthly pledge if you're already a supporter please consider increasing your pledge the need is urgent so please go to sqpn.com slash give that's sqpn.com slash give then they see the uh the, the little girl on tv and she she sees them on her tv they see her presumably on a monitor, although we never see her from their point of view, only from hers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I don't know that they're physical that they're seeing her image as a little girl. They hear her voice and identify her as a little girl from yeah. that, but I think they may be mm-hmm. just seeing a data display because they're looking at a library console. Right. Right. And then she the, with with Apple flat keyboards. Yeah, I love that. All yes. the keyboards were the Apple keyboards. <laughs> yes, those must have been brand new at the time. Uh, so I didn't realize they had them that far back. So they, uh, yeah. Yeah. My, my iMac, uh, 2009 iMac came with the one without the, uh, number pad. So it would have been about that right time. Oh, okay. Okay. So uh, there's actually a clue in this scene about who the little girl is or where she is, because the doctor has told Donna previously that the core of this planet is the biggest hard drive ever. And we later learn it's got all kinds of library indexing search features. It's got the complete text of all the books so new copies can be made and so forth. And what uh, Proper Dave is doing is on a library terminal, he's calling up the data core to try to find where what happened 100 years ago. And the calling the data core puts them in touch with the little girl. And so 
that is a clue telling us that the little girl and her world is somehow connected to the data core of the planet. Right. Uh, and uh, something happens to their conversation where like she, the, the, the connection is broken and she mm -hmm. starts trying to get them back on her television with the, by pressing buttons on the remote control, which causes real world consequences, books flying off of shelves, and a secret panel opens that only Miss Evangelista sees, but she can't get anyone to pay attention to her, so she walks through it. Because, yeah. you know, that's mm -hmm. what you do. <laughs> also, this is more science fairy tale stuff. If Why would a library have a feature designed into it to throw <laughs> books off of its shelves at people? Yeah. Uh, well, for fun. I mean, that would be kind of <laughs> yeah. fun. But, but other than that, yeah, there's no practical reason. Instead of having like, instead of having like someone to come and give you, uh, you know, find the books for you, it's just like, oh, I need this book. Boom, there it is. Like, well, I mean, think of how cool it would look. You're the you're the librarian at the desk, and you're like, you want, oh, this book, and you press a button on the keyboard, and it flashes the air. You stick your hand up, and it lands in your hand. Here you go. <laughs> that would be really cool. So I I think that would be the. <laughs> that would be cool, but I don't know that that's what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. if that's your head cannon. Who am I? <laughs> It's certainly not OSHA approved, that's for sure. So uh, so they find out that 100 years ago, the final message recorded in the computer system was 4,022 saved, no survivors. And they can't figure out what it means. Uh, the 4,022 people saved, no survivors. Uh, and they're interrupted in their discussion this by hearing Miss Evangelista screaming. They come running, and they find her skeleton in, the, you know, in this chair in this other room. In and, a torn up spacesuit. In a torn up spacesuit. And then, but they hear her voice coming through River's communicator, and they say that she's ghosting, which means the, the neural relay that they use for communication may, holds a conscious impression of the living host. So yeah. it's, it's a little bit of, like you say, science fantasy about how our consciousness is mirrored inside the, the relay or something. Yeah, and it also goes by real quick, but there's an explanation for why they have these neural relays. The doctor says they let you send thought mail. Ah, okay. That would I think that's probably not a good idea. That sounds dangerous. So uh, there's this very affecting scene, especially where where they have to kind of talk her through the final her final moments as the relay buffer runs out essentially, and uh, Donna is the one that is who kind of is trying to help her and uh well be, because she bonded with miss yes. evangelista she was trying to be kind to her where everyone else was being mean and so the ghost the data ghost of miss evangelista is like is the nice lady there and she really wants to talk to the nice lady and she asks donna not to tell other people mm. about how She's embarrassed about how she's not smart, and Donna promises not to. But at the, at the same time, Donna is having tremendous future shock. She's already been having future shock because of the faces on the data nodes are real people's faces. Right. I mean, the doctor says this is like donating a park bench in the 51st century. But to Donna, this is horrific. And now she's in this situation where there's a ghost of a dead woman who's right in front of her that's asking to be comforted. And she's just having massive future shock, but she deals with it, and she does what she can to comfort Miss Evangelista, who then starts looping. And that looping of the dialogue of a data ghost is going to become a significant element in the horror that's coming mm -hmm. up. Right, right. Yeah, her last loop is, I, 
ice cream, ice cream, ice cream, you know, which the, the yeah. which reinforces her child the childlike demeanor and simplicity mm-hmm. and makes the horror of her death that much worse. Uh meanwhile in the back in the the girl's home, Dr. Moon is there with her um he, he try and, and as he's about to leave, he's about to depart out from their session, the dad leaves her alone with Dr. Moon, at which point Dr. Moon says the real world is a lie. The library is real. Only you can save them. It's yeah. like, oh, that's nice. No pressure. Is, is yeah. He, he says, you know, there's the real world, and then there's the world of nightmares. Well, the real world is a lie, and your nightmares are real. Yeah. <laughs> Just what you want a psychologist to tell a child. <laughs> yes, yes. Talk about horror. Um, th- and then we have a scene where River explains to Donna that she knows the doctor in the future. And Donna gets very concerned because River didn't recognize her on site. So that mm-hmm. implies to Donna that's that something happens to Donna? Well, at a minimum that she won't be traveling with the doctor right. in perpetuity. Because she said, yeah. I'll never leave him. I'll never, you know, uh, with talking to Martha, I'll never leave him. I'll never not travel with right. him. And all of a sudden right. now right. she finds out she's not going to be traveling with him soon. So uh, we have the, they're back in the rotunda. Uh, they they went back mm-hmm. in there. Um, we find out that uh, the doctor is scanning the floor with his sonic screwdriver, but it's uh, it's not working. So River offers him hers, and he's like, "Wait, where did you get a sonic screwdriver from?" Yeah, hers also is more advanced than his. It has something called a red mode and dampers, which he says his doesn't have, and she says it will one day. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, and and we will see when it. We'll we'll probably talk more at length about this at the end of the next episode. But uh, we see, we eventually in in real life we'll see her get this the screwdriver. Then we have the doctor telling him about don't cross shadows, don't you know stay out of the shadows. They throw a chicken leg into the shadows where it's immediately consumed by the Vashta Narada. Yeah, it's that's a really simple but great practical effect because yes. what they do is in one angle the doctor has gotten River Song's packed lunch to demonstrate that the Vashnadarada that hide in the shadows are carnivores and he takes this, you know, chicken leg looks like it's been broiled or baked or something. It's got meat on it like you would have for lunch and he tosses it into a shadow and it, and all of a sudden it's just a chicken bone clattering on the floor. Yeah. So it's right. like just instantly the flesh is off of it. And then proper Dave says, uh, Doctor, I've got two shadows, uh, yeah. which is uh, you know, <laughs> a, a horror point. We, have, we were told, you know, if you have two shadows, it means the uh, Vashnarada have, have locked onto you. Uh, he tells everyone else to put their helmets on for safety. I'm not sure why. <laughs> apparently it doesn't it's, work. It certainly isn't going to help. Yeah, apparently it doesn't help very much. Um, and, uh, the, and, and Donna actually calls him on it. Like, well, we've got, we don't have any helmets. He goes, we're safe anyway. And she says, uh, oh, how are we safe? We're not. That was just a clever lie to shut you up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he, he also talks, he gives us a little more information about the Vashti Narada. These ones that he, that they're encountering here, he says are more aggressive than he's ever seen. He, he says, normally they live on roadkill on most planets, but not everyone comes back out of the dark. So there is reason for humans to be afraid, but these are like super aggressive for some reason. Right. And um, and they get into proper Dave's spacesuit, and then there's this moment where like he, he, he cries out and the spacesuit contracts around him. 
and like all of his flesh is being eaten yep. in a second. And he's then just a spacesuit that they continue to animate. And this is something that Moffat realized. He wasn't the first to realize this, but spacesuits can be really creepy. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, all the way back to Scooby-Doo, where you have outer, the outer space kook that's like a spacesuit with a cackling skeleton head in it that walks around and menaces people. And it's really scary and effective as a villain. And Moffat will later use this same effect in The Impossible Astronaut, where someone who's in a, sp a spacesuit with a darkened visor and you can't see their face seems to kill the doctor. And that's really creepy. Mm -hmm. And here we have Proper Dave um, in a spacesuit with a darkened visor. And his at one point, as he, as he lurches forward, his skull comes into contact with the faceplate and you can see it again. And it's and he's walking around menacing them. In his case, his data ghost is looping on, hey, who turned out the lights? Yeah. Hey, who turned out the lights? Hey, who turned out the lights? Which And it's really effective. Turning out the lights is, I mean, a, a, a scary sort of thing. I mean, it, it, well, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, when you're a kid, someone turning out the lights yeah, is a scary moment. And it's really kind of playing on that. How many of us when we were kids or maybe even as adults, sometimes you 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 turn off the lights in a room and all of a sudden you get that creepy feeling that there's something in there. So you rush out of the room really quickly because you don't yeah. want to be it's where the it's the Vashon Arata. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's something, again, Moffat does really well. He plays on those fears. It's like those, those, those childish, immature fears that you had as a kid. They're real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. a reason you have those fears. Uh, like he does later on with the lump under the bed. Remember that one in a later episode we'll see where there's just something in a lump in the middle of the bed under the blankets, you know, it, it's like really creepy. Uh, one of the things that we, we kind of skipped over is that the doctor took Donna out of the rotunda to another room where he yeah. transmitted Actually, er, early on in the episode, before the, the party of, of archaeologists arrive, um, that once the doctor realizes what's going on, before the audience even knows, he says, we've got to get back to the TARDIS. Yeah. So he's... He's he's willing to abandon this planet and get out of there until other people show up. Mm -hmm. Right. And and then now that the threat is growing and proper Dave has been killed, he wants to get Donna out of there. Right. So he takes Donna into another room and against her will teleports her to the TARDIS. But something happens in the teleport process. As soon as she starts materializing in the TARDIS, she fades out again and screams. Mm -hmm. Right. In fact, uh, she he tries to get her out of there before uh, proper Dave is piranhaed, but he is. But that, but after he is, yeah, and she is uh, taken away. The little girl, meanwhile, in her in her home, says to her dad, uh, "Donna Noble has been saved." And then, as they're running away from proper Dave's zombie uh, skeleton, uh, they encounter one another courtesy node in the uh, in the stacks, which turns, and we see it's Donna's face, and she's saying over and over again. Donna Noble has left the library. Donna Noble has been saved over and over again. Uh, and, and, and that's basically where we end the episode is this over yeah. and over and, they, and over again. And they set that up for there's a, it's subtle, but they set up why Donna's face appears on the data node, because earlier in the episode, one of the faces that appeared said to Donna that his face had been selected because the library thought it would be pleasing to her. Right. Mm -hmm. And and it's one of the many faces stored in our flesh banks. And so that was one of part of her early future shock. And now as they're running out of the library, they're going, where's Donna? 
and the doctor asks a data node, where's Donna Noble? And that and so it selects her face yep. and tells him Donna Noble has been has left the library. Donna Noble has been saved. And yes. you hear that uh, the repeat of that line on top of the, the hey, who it, turned out the lights? Yeah. Yes. And that's yes. where the episode it's, ends. Yeah. Cascading moment of horror. Yes. Uh, so anything left to say about this particular episode before we uh, finish up uh, and come back to the to the, the second part of the story next week? Father Corey? Nope. I have a few little things. Early on, there is a line where Donna asks or suggests, you know, maybe the lights are burning out or something, and that's the explanation. The doctor says, this place runs on fission cells. They'll outburn the sun. And I'm like, really? Fission cells don't do that in the real world. You can totally run out of nuclear fuel in a fission reactor. Uh, yes. Um, so science fairy tale rather than science fact. I have in my notes early on that there's a moment, I think it's just before the archaeologist crew arrives, and I have in my notes, if this is if I didn't, if I had not seen the episode before, I would have no idea what's happening, but wow, is this creepy. And then the space-suited people arrive. When In the little girl's world, the, for some reason, even though this is the 51st century, she's living in a 21st century environment. Right. Yep. On her TV is playing a cartoon called Pedro and Frankensheep, which is a real-world <laughs> cartoon. And it has a kind of creepy aesthetic, mm. which fits mm -hmm. the episode that it's being used in. Also, she's got a Robbie the Robot toy mm. in yes. the background on a table and some other interesting toys that I recognize but don't know the names of. Yeah. There are some interesting little religious references in this show. At one point when the doctor calls for people to turn on the lights, River says, you heard him, people, let there be light, mm. which, of course, is a quotation from Genesis 1. Right. And we have Miss Evangelista. Right. I was going to note that. Which, is, which yeah, becomes important, but, especially in the next episode. In a way, but there's they don't make anything explicitly religious out of these things. So I just no. find it interesting that they're laced in there. There is a moment where they keep they start seeing this this word Cal C A L, and the doctor asks Mister Lux who Cal is, and he he says, "Well, you you wouldn't sign the contract, so I'm not going to tell you." And uh, the doctor says, I don't want to see everyone in this room dead because he thinks his pride is more important. Mm -hmm. And River has a great comeback to that. She says, then why didn't you sign his contract? <laughs> right. You know, you're, you're, it's your pride that's keeping you from signing that contract, in other words. Yes. But then she confesses, I didn't sign it either, which, which means she also <laughs> doesn't know who or what Cal is. Mm. We also get the first reference in this to another, not only to River's catchphrase, hello, sweetie. Uh, she also gives him spoilers. Yep. So we get that. There's a neat moment where after Proper Dave has been eaten, shadows start extending, like five or six shadows extend from his suit and in different directions. So you don't, he doesn't have to be physically near you mm -hmm. to infect you with the Vashtra Narada. So that's nice and effectively scary. Also, when they're running from Proper Dave, they're trying to get out of a room, and River pulls out a gun and shoots it at the wall, and it makes a square, and the doc a square hole. Yep. And the doctor looks over and says, squareness gun! <laughs> and we've actually seen squareness guns before. Oh, yeah. They were in the 2005 uh, series with Christopher Eccleston, 
Captain Jack from the 51st century used a squareness gun in the episode The Empty Child. Mm -hmm. So now that they're in that era, there are other squareness guns to be had. And Stephen Moffat wrote The Empty Child. <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll, mention, I'll talk about the what I was thinking about with the Evangelista in the next episode one, why why I think it's there. Uh-huh. Not for specifically religious reasons, but because of the idea that it conveys in a cultural mm -hmm. sense. But uh, yes, all all very good ones. And uh, so well, let's wrap it up here. We'll come back next week. We'll finish off talking about the second part of this two-part story. Before we do that, I do, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Matthew, Mark C., Blake L., John, and Greta C., and Thistledown John. Uh, Matthew and Mark and John. I wish we had a Luke that, uh, there, but we didn't. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What did you think of Silence in the Library? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send us an email to Who at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time, where we'll, of course, be talking about the second part of this story, The Forest of the Dead. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Dom. And Father Cory Stika, thank you as well. Yeah, thank you. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember... Hey, who turned out the lights? Hey, who turned out the lights? Hey, who turned out the lights? Hey, right. who turned out the lights? This is going to be fun. Hey, who turned out the lights?